Alrighty, so what's up everybody? Welcome back to Career Insights 501. This is Dr. Loso, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Amanda Martin, and she is the Director of Program Program Management. And she's going to be talking to us today about her career and how she got to where she is today. So, Dr. Martin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Dr. Loso. Yeah, you just no call problem. me Amanda. So Okay. <laughs> It kind of the same way with me. I tell people, it's like, yeah, you don't really have to call me Dr. Ewing or whatever. It's just Carlos. So I, I feel you on that. But, so that's interesting. Are are you big on people calling you doctor? Um, or is it like family and every and friends is just kind of like no? Or um, And then industry, you you kind of go by that, that title. I, I'm really proud of the fact that I'm a doctor, but I don't. So I want people to know that I'm a doctor, but it still feels weird for people to refer to me as, you know, Dr. Amanda or Dr. Martin. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I always think of the shoe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Dr. Martin. Um, yeah, I think I'm the same way with, I'm, I'm right right there with you on that. I do want people to know, like, I have that degree or that level of education, but I'm not really... I don't know. I just like Carlos. I think it's so cool. It's like this whole Dr. Loso thing is it take it's taking me some time to get used to and I'm still not there yet, but it's How long ago did you get your doctorate? Two thousand and sixteen. Wow, okay. Yeah. What about you? Uh two thousand and twenty one. So it's okay. pretty new for me. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I got mine in instructional systems and workforce development. What what was yours in? Uh, computer science. Oh, okay. Nice. So what does it look like a, a doctorate in computer science? So I had a friend and he was asking me about going to school to get his um, PhD or his doctorate in like, um, I think it was cybersecurity or something like that. And I was telling him from my experience, if you're going to be working in industry, unless you, you know, you're going to have a research type of job, then I wouldn't recommend that you go that far and get a phd um so i think it really depends on if you're going to be doing that i feel like research intensive type of work or speaking or being a professor so what does that look like compared to a master's or a bachelor's degree yeah so you're 100 percent right on that in that having a doctorate in computer science is not completely useless but mostly <laughs> and <laughs> yeah um, there's a lot of people that, you know, they don't even get their, their bachelor in computer science. They just go straight into the field. And that's like a, a great career path um, for some people. But I wanted my doctorate and I'm passionate about computer science. So I finished it. Um, the Getting your computer science doctorate, there's a lot of coursework, just like if you're going for your bachelor's or master's. You know, honestly, a lot of the same coursework for a bachelor's you'll do again for your doctorate, just at a little bit deeper level. And so it's like almost the same exact assignments. It's just you dig a little deeper. And then the best part about the doctorate, of course, is is your thesis. Mm. And my thesis was writing a, a proof of concept for a blockchain application to manage references. And so it's kind of like a novel approach for using the blockchain. And, you know, being able to do that at the, the doctorate level just means you can dive in and you get to manage essentially a whole project on your own. And so it's a huge scale project, but you are writing it all by yourself, which is different from how we actually work in industry, of course, because 
you know, when we're working real time computer science, you have this like little teeny tiny ownership. Yeah. 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 That's, that's definitely, you know, interesting for me as well. It was more so a personal thing. Um, as an instructional designer, I don't think that you really need to go past a bachelor's degree. And I found so many people in my field don't even have a degree in instructional design. They might've been, you know, teachers in the past or English majors, or, I mean, I had somebody who was even a math major that became an instructional designer. So that's kind of like a big thing with me and something that I talked about in my book is make sure that you just like research your industry and in your degrees to make sure that you don't, I guess, get overeducated for no reason. Um, Cause I feel like now experience and having the skills is, is a lot more important or is becoming a lot more important than degrees because a lot of college people are graduating. I feel like in, in tech specifically with um, not enough skills or obsolete skills, just because tech is changing so fast, you know, I mean, yeah. When, when I was trying to get into tech, um, I was actually, you know, finished with my doctorate and I was entertaining the idea of doing a coding boot camp after I got my doctorate. Uh, because mm -hmm. I was having a hard time essentially finding that first job in the tech field. And, you know, now I'm well in the tech field and whatnot, so I'm happy. But there's a lot of people out there that are hiring that they only want to hire people that, you know, they're from boot camps or they have that experience. And if you don't have that experience, it's really hard to get it. So yeah. even if you have that doctor, you might not be able to get the job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about your educational background, like, I guess, from more of the lower level. I know we talked, we've mm -hmm. been talking a lot about your doctorate, but um, did you start off in computer science or is that something that you kind of navigated towards as you move towards your doctorate? Yeah, so um, back when I was, you know, growing up, my family was very anti-education. And, mm. you know, I, I come from a very blue collar family. Um, you know, we value hard work. Um, my family was farmers and I was going to go along that trajectory too. But uh, one of the guidance counselors, she sat me down and had me take a placement test and I did well enough to like be enrolled in college classes and stuff. And so she, she lied to the college and said I was older than I am and had me start taking college classes. And since oh, wow. then, you know, I just like have been pushing it as hard as I can and doing essentially the, the hardest thing I could possibly do. So um, I started college then and I, of course, uh, started in physics because I couldn't think of a harder major to do. <laughs> mm, I saw the physics book behind you. So I was like, computer science and physics, that's <laughs> two worlds apart right there. But kind of. But uh, yeah. Yeah, they're really related. And I, I so I was taking physics classes and there was a computational physics and it's mm. it's one of those classes in college that they use to like weed people out and i just loved it i jumped in and one of the the week two assignments was essentially like modeling how a rocket flies and so i did that and then i added more equations to like make a smiley face um and i did all of this in like basic c <laughs> oh wow um, and it was just ever since I was able to do that, it was just like kind of love at first sight. And so I started getting research experiences, um, doing code for people. And that essentially paid my bills so I can finish my degree in physics. Um, but I really liked kind of the more astronomy based physics. And so mm -hmm. like, um, 
you know, modeling atmospheres, solar systems, things like that, seeing how galaxies merge. There's just like really cool astronomy problems out there that we use a computer for. And so I kept on going in that route. Um, and I really enjoyed it until I was studying this problem. And I remember it was like, you know, when you're a grad student, you're doing like hundred hour weeks and you don't think anything else of it. You're just, you know, you're in the, the lab working for hundred hours. And there was this one problem that I was looking at, and it was like studying this galaxy that we would never go to and never in a million years would we go to it. And then I was reading the news. It was like Y Combinator or something like that. And these students, they were able to essentially help Syrian refugees, like actually get jobs and lives by creating a database. And mm. so this super simple problem of making a database in computer science was able to like transform the lives of all these Syrian refugees. And I was like, what in the world am I doing? I'm studying yeah. this galaxy. <laughs> well, these people are like helping humanity. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it was my, my breaking point there. And I said, no more astrophysics, I'm done. And so I wanna help real people. And so I dropped out of the astrophysics PhD program and I went into teaching full-time. Okay. Yeah. Were you teaching like um, K through 12 or college? Um, I was teaching nine through 12 and college. Oh, okay. and, nice. Um, I was, I said to myself, you know, I was training the next generation of scientists and mathematicians mm -hmm. and I was teaching them physics, computer science and math. And I enjoyed that for, you know, well over a decade. Um, but then you start seeing the same problems and the same students year after year. And so you get that teacher burnout and I wanted something more. So I finished that doctorate. Nice, nice. That's very interesting. So you went from your bachelor's straight to your PhD, you skipped your master's. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's uh, pretty common in astrophysics where they okay. do like a joint master's and PhD program. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Makes sense. Because a master's in astrophysics is like completely useless. Nobody has that except for yeah. people like me that drop out. <laughs> I got you. How I want to ask you, how did you find, um, I know you had the, the teacher burnout, but I guess, did you, I'm pretty sure I know you had to see issues within the, um, I guess, school systems. Um, what were some of those issues? If you saw them, I don't want to, you know, put that you saw issues, you know, on you, but, um, what were some of those issues and how do you think they could be corrected? Yeah, I would say that um, the the last year that I was a teacher, I really noticed a lot of problems. And, you know, I remember so clearly that it was one class time when I, I did lab-based classes. The so students were up and moving and, you know, they were soldering circuits and, you know, some people would be coding and Arduinos and all this stuff all over the place. And everyone was just doing their work mm -hmm. and doing good. But then one boy came to another boy and like completely depanced him like underwear, just everything, whole nine yards. And so I, I saw the, the Franken beans of this poor boy and so did the entire class. And, you know, of course we reported to the principal and it was just simply, you know, boys will be boys and that's it. <laughs> oh, um, wow. And, you know, to me, that bo that poor boy, he's like traumatized, right? Cause yeah. everyone saw his private parts and, Right. It was just simply written off as, you know, boys will be boys, which I was just like, this is not right. And, you know, there are, of course, other times like 
um, kids throwing desks and, you know, things like this that are just really violent behaviors. Like I had kids that would go out and get punch lockers until their fists were bloody and then come back like it was nothing. Um, and so I really feel for what the teachers are going through because I've seen a lot of that stuff. And how do we fix it is I would say that we need a lot of compassion to the mm -hmm. students, you know, when that principal said boys will be boys, is that really what he felt that student should have? Or should he feel like that boy should have, you know, some kind of compensation for his behavior? You know, should he be treated like he's a, a human that got victimized here? Like something needs mm -hmm. to happen to make him feel whole again. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Do you think it's something in the water? Because I don't know, it just seems like it's outrageous these days compared to when I w was going to school, like what kids do in the classroom, like the, the throwing the other desk and the, you know, getting physical with teachers. And uh, I couldn't even imagine like that to me is stuff that I would hear about, like in, you know, like a city like New York and one of those inner city schools, you know, mm -hmm. with rough, you know, students like lean on me. Like, that's what I think of. Like, just mm -hmm. like a normal everyday suburban, you know, regular public school, this stuff is happening just so often. Like I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out like how do we get how do we get here with the um, schools and the teachers? Yeah, well, I mean, we know there's stuff in the water. Microplastics are in everything these days, right? But I don't know yeah. if that's actually doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely something in the water, yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, a lot of it is that we're exposed to so much and, you know, kind of like your podcast, it, it humanizes people and it's like, mm -hmm. you know, the real stories of people and what they're going through. And a lot of the times, you know, we get Facebook reels and TikToks, So we get 20 seconds or less of somebody's life. And so we, we disattach that that is an actual human person. And so then when we see somebody else, you know, your teacher or your neighbor, are we treating them like that TikTok person because our interactions are so small or are we actually mm. treating them like the person that we can relate with? Yeah. That's an interesting point. One more thing and then we'll get back on track to like your career and stuff, but it's just so interesting. Do you think that principals have burnt, like are suffering from like principal burnout, just like teachers are suffering from um, teacher burnout? So what made me ask that is, you know, what you said, um, the principal, like, um, so it got me to thinking, it's just like, was that what he really thought or was he just kind of like over it? And that was his response to just like, you know, brush it off. Yeah, I think that you definitely are onto something with that because I had, I had one principal that I absolutely loved, just the, the best principal. He was on it, relating with kids, phenomenal, over the top, just supportive to everyone. Um, and he was like that for probably three years or so. And then I'm not sure what happened, but afterwards, you know, it was like a, a flip or something in his head, but he was just a different person, you know. And at the time I was thinking maybe he's just, you know, depressed or something because he was withdrawn. And this is a different principle from the one that I was mm -hmm. working with, with the, the deep pantsing. But, you know, this guy, he, he got withdrawn over time and stopped participating as much. And so he definitely was experiencing some some fatigue. And I don't know if it was from job or life. It's, you know, we only can bring so much to our work environment. So I'm not sure which one it is. Yeah. Interesting. So let's get in a, a, a little bit of your career. 
journey and um so you talked about it you know a little bit but um could you i guess talk about your first professional job mm, my first professional job um so when i was in high school i was in the the junior reserve officer training corps so the the mcjrtc mm-hmm. and so my my staff sergeant he got me a job as a seamstress and so mm. that was kind of the first profession I was in. It was, you know, sewing up pants and buttons on shirts and things like that. And I learned a lot, you know, coming to, to work on time, how to treat your uh, colleagues right and things like that. Yeah. And so after that, is that when you went into teaching or you had more like jobs in between there? Yeah. So, so after that, I then went into the, the bachelor's program. Um, I, of course, did side work, like worked at Walmart, and um, I worked at a bar for a while as a bartender, uh, you know, things to pay the bills like that. But my main job mm-hmm. was being a teaching assistant. Okay. And that was at, um, in college or in Yeah, that was in 12? college. Okay. Um, and so I was in college, and I started college early, and I was starting a teaching assistant. I was only... Geez, I think 18 years old when I started becoming a teaching assistant and Mm. I was teaching fellow college students. And so some of the students were, you know, older than me. So it was kind of funny to, to think that (laughs) here I am their teacher and all of my students are generally older than me. Yeah. As a um, former educator, like what are some things that you could tell students, you know, maybe high schoolers listening or, you know, college students in the undergraduate degree program that might want to get into um, astrophysics or um, software development since you've had experience in both of those? Yeah. So this is something that I I always told my students quite a bit because, you know, I was a math teacher and people almost always say they aren't good at math, so they can't Mm -hmm. go into engineering or whatever. Um, I don't actually memorize my multiplication table. You know, math teachers will always tell you, you've got to memorize that multiplication table. And I got a doctorate in computer science. I've taught math <laughs> for 15 years. You don't have to memorize your multiplication table. <laughs> it's it's silly stuff like that, that math teachers tell you that you have to do. But there is no, like, rule for people to do well in math or science. Mm-hmm. What were some of the struggles for you as a as a college student? Um, you know, I know you mentioned like your family were, you, and I, I want to make sure I'm saying this anti education. Is that how you phrased it? Okay, that's, that's <laughs> spot on. Yeah. Okay. Um, like going to college and not, I guess, really having that support. Like, how was your college experience in undergrad? I had a, I had a lot of friends, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't participate with my family very much because they weren't very supportive, but my friends were essentially just everything for me. You know, I lived with my friends. I was roommates with my friends. Um, When you go to college and if you're in a really difficult major, I don't know if this is true for all the majors, but you, you know, have a cohort with the people that are in your classes and you just become best friends with all of them. You know, you you go out to the bars with them and that's where you do your homework. You just, you live everywhere with them. And so mm-hmm. I couldn't get through it without them. Yeah. I had a friend of mine on here. He was in biomed and he talked about um, 
having, you know, that cohort and those really making those close friendships. So that's interesting that you say that with the more difficult majors, because for me, it was just kind of like, uh, you know, I might need to hit this person up and get some notes or whatever. But other than that, I didn't really have a cohort. Even in grad school, you know, working on my doctorate, I didn't have a cohort that I went in and came out with. We kind of like grouped at times at certain points, like when we were trying to write our proposal or getting ready to defend, but it wasn't that whole cohort sense. But I definitely think when you're going through um, challenging majors or um, degrees that cohorts are important. I want to ask you this about your doctorate experience. Did you find that your school department whatever was supportive so for and the reason i asked because for me I, f I felt like we had to kind of like figure it out as we go along and it wasn't really a well flushed out program like an undergraduate degree you know like they tell you, you need to do this 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 and that um so how was your experience um the the coursework is pretty well mapped out where i went and they know exactly all the courses that you need for the the doctorate and they have a you know roughly take this many courses per term and things like that. Uh, when it came to the, the dissertation though, it was very much a, a choose your own adventure type of thing. Mm. And I had an advisor and one of the reasons why I picked him is because he was just awesome. He had, you know, the doctorate and then like part way towards a JD degree and PMI mm. certification, like six different things and just like over the top, amazing. And, so he kind of, you know, kept me on the straight and narrow so that I would get it done. But yeah, okay. it's it's very much, I think that the doctorate is oftentimes designed ambiguously to prepare you for your future where you have to kind of make those project goals yourself. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I would quite put it, but um, I, I like that. The, the choose your own adventure, you know, I'm going to have to start using some of that when I go and do interviews and talks about, um, you know, my experience with the, the doctorate degree. Choose your own adventure and preparing you for the ambiguity. So I can't even say that word. So for I the, love um, those books as a kid. So that's probably where I got that term. That would be like okay. all I read for the first like five years I was reading chapter books. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about like what you do now as a, as a um, program manager or your director of program management, excuse me. Um, so what, what does that look like? <laughs> well, so I've only been at the new place for about two weeks now. Um, okay. And one of the reasons why I love it, love it there is because the, the mantra of the place I'm at is that we're, we're, we're helpful and we're hopeful and we're humble. And so, you know, at the Linux Foundation, we do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff to get things done. And so, for example, I'm part of the, the Open Source Security Foundation. And so we're trying to essentially make all open source software more secure. Mm -hmm. And so behind the scenes, there's people that are essentially you know, taking notes for the governing board meetings, they're doing all the calendar invites, making sure all of the videos go to YouTube and kind of the wheels behind all of the operational procedures. And so I am one of those wheels that essentially makes things run. Okay, gotcha. 
And do you manage a group of people or are you more or less an individual contributor? So it's an individual contrib contributor. Um, I'm the director of program management, so I actually don't have any like people that I manage, which mm -hmm. is really nice because um, I really like it that way. That's what I did when I was a teacher leader and stuff because I delegate tasks. And if people don't do the task, it's not like they get, you know, dinged with management or anything else like that. But they don't do it probably because I haven't like established a consensus or a reason behind why they should be doing it. And so, you know, my leadership style fits really well because it's like a servant leader, you know, lead by consensus model. Okay. And how much of your, um, I guess, your software um, or your PhD in software development, correct? Mm -hmm. how, much, how much does that play into your role? So it helps me understand the pains of what they're going through. Um, and mm -hmm. I keep on thinking, you know, we have these focus Fridays and I keep on thinking I'm going to go actually go in and, and help program some open source solutions with these people. Um, but right now I'm still catching up on kind of the onboarding test. So I haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. But as far as, um, you know, being a, a software designer with my PhD, I thought about, you know, how to manage different issues and milestones and things like that. And for the open source security foundation, it's like that times a thousand. And so mm. <laughs> the amount of organizational skills needed is just magnified a lot. Um, yeah. But it's the same tools like, you know, we're in GitHub and we have, you know, something like 500 repos in GitHub or something. Um, and it's essentially seeing what all of those are doing. How do they link together? We're starting to explore this new GitHub repository that VMware is just launching called our stuff, which I have never even heard of. So it's a new technology. And Mm -hmm. Going through my doctorate and learning those skills, hopefully, you know, makes it so that learning this next thing is even easier. Is there a difference between a program designer and a program developer, or are those just like interchangeable terms for that role? Um, I would say one is kind of an overarching and the other one's more in the weeds of it is how I, I would interpret those. Like the okay. program developer developer would be more hands-on getting stuff done whereas the designer would be kind of like the architectural flow gotcha so but, i guess the the designer piece would maybe come before the developer piece if there was an order to it if that's how i would interpret it okay okay gotcha um god there was another question i was going to ask you about about something that you said but i get i lost track i need to like have ai helping me out with like I need that chip, Elon. I keep joking about that. Let me stop before try to get me to be a guinea pig. Um, <laughs> it's it's tempting to be a guinea pig. I mean, I saw that they're they're starting those trials or something. So oh, are they? They yeah, they found the the vendor that they want to start with or something. It's still not approved by the FDA or anything like that. But ah, uh, okay. I haven't seen too much about that lately. I've been seeing all Chat GPT stuff, so I'm out of the loop with the. Um, brain chipping um thing but let me ask you that so i've been asking people a lot about ai how do you think that will play a part into um your field in the future so i really think that ai is a good path forward because it's not that it can replace humans but it can really extenuate what we do um our our ceo jim 
he sends out like these weekly memos and whatnot. And there was a really great one last time that he shared. And it was about how somebody used chat GPT for like just 30 minutes to see how much they could actually get done. And so they pose a question to the chat GPT, you know, like make this, um, this abstract or something for me based on this blurb. And so it comes back and then make this image for me. And it comes back and doing all of those individual components would probably take this person like over a day, but using chat GPT, he could kind of narrow what it was doing and focus that time. So it was only like a 30 minute endeavor. And that's one of the mm. things I really like about chat GPT is, you know, for example, um, I'm applying to the, the Grace Hopper conference and my bio kind of sucks. And so I wanted to change it up. And so I went into chat GPT and I said, you know, here's my bio, make it better. And it sucked even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, I have to preface it like, okay, write this in an inspirational manner and then send it again. And it comes back a little bit better. And so some of the sentences I would pick and I replaced in my bio with the, the better sentences. So it's one of those things that it's not going to be like done better, awesome, perfect, just with AI, but it can help you do things. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's interesting. What I would love to see come from AI and things like chat GPT is that people could um, work less, still get the same amount of pay um and be able to enjoy life more because i'm a big on like why do we have all this like technology and people still working like most of their lives you know most of their their week if technology can make things faster um and more efficient and easier for us so i i don't want chat gpt and ai to make things faster for us and then employers want more from you know us so we're still working 40 50 hour weeks so it's like can we work like 25, 30 and, you know, be able to take vacations and long weekends and spend time with our family and friends. Um, but I doubt that would happen, but they are trying to go to the four, four day work week. So we'll see um, how all that ties into each other. Yeah. The four day is huge. I, I hope more people embrace that idea. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely see. Um, how was your experience different from teaching high school and, and college students? How was it different from um, first on the chat GPT thing? I want to say that it is hilarious because I introduced it to my son and my daughter and they're mm -hmm. both, uh, they're 12 and 14. And so it's just hilarious to listen to my 12 year old son talk about it because he's like, I want to take creative writing next year because it's going to be the easiest class now because all <laughs> I have to do is give chat GPT like two sentences and tell it to write me five pages or something and I'm done. And so then I was like, Hey son, have you heard about zero GPT? And I showed him that website. That's the AI checker. And he's like completely defeated now. Like, Oh man, <laughs> I have to write everything else on my own. I I do think that um, this is going to change the way that people are educated. And I don't want to keep talking about it because I feel like I, I, I'm starting to talk about it in every podcast. But I really do think that AI and chat GPT is going to usher in um, 
just like some type of education reform, at least to some degree, um, because it's getting it's getting so advanced. Like when I saw Chat GPT four and they did the demo and the guy, you know, did the whole like little web page from a little drawing on the notebook paper. Have you seen that video? No, I haven't. You have to send it to me. So he just drew like, okay, I'll send it to you. But he just drew like some little brackets and like tell a joke or whatever. Took a picture of it, uploaded it to like Twitch or um, one of those little social media platforms similar to Twitch. It wasn't Twitch, I don't think. Um, but anyway, he uploaded the picture there and it put it into chat GPT some type of way. And it made a working web page. You click on a button, it would tell the joke and then... Click on it, it would show the answer, and it was just mind blowing. And then he uploaded another picture. It's like a meme or a little funny image of a squirrel holding a binoculars or something. And he was like, "What's funny about this picture?" And it came back, and it's like, "This is um, funny because a squirrel doesn't typically hold binoculars; it typically holds an acorn or something like that." So I was like. <laughs> This is insane. And it wasn't like a real square. It was just like an illustration like you would see, like maybe on some type of like greeting card or something, you know, just like a little newspaper type illustration. But it was insane. Hello, this is Dr. Amanda Martin, and you're listening to Career Insights 501 with Dr. Loso. So now, now going back to your question, how is, you know, teaching different and stuff? Um, I, I started teaching in 2005. And so quite mm -hmm. a while. And you know, back then there wasn't a Google that people went to and I don't know when Google came out or anything. Maybe there was a Google, but people didn't go to it all the time in 2005. And I remember as a teacher when people started Googling things and, you know, there was this big discussion in the teacher community about how our questions had to shift from being kind of that factual knowledge to that understanding knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. rather than asking what is a multiplication table, then you have to ask, you know, like, how would you multiply seven and eight in the base numbers or something so that you would do understanding based rather than factual. Um, and I think we're at another precipice because I still teach, you know, a class um, online just to, to stay close to my roots. And I go into the discussion post and I take what the students write and I put it in, in zero GPT. And about half the time, those discussion posts show as being written by AI. And so you, we don't. I can't mark the students off or anything because it's a discussion post through. It's not through Turnin or anything, um, but I think we're going to be at this next precipice where we're going to have to start defining not just what is understanding and having students demonstrate understanding, but it's going to have to be some like demonstration of knowledge, and mm -hmm. it's the demonstration that is really important, anyways. You know, being able to actually write the code or being able to actually you know solve that math word problem. Um, that's what's really important. I think that will be done by AI at some point in time, but it has to be curated by a human so that you get that output that you yeah. want. Yeah. I like that. And, you know, something that I've been saying about that topic is that I think that another thing that is going to do as far as transforming education is teaching people, um, in a sense, how to become researchers. So when this information comes back, like, um, okay, how do you vet it? How do you make sure that it's factual? And then what do you do with this information once you get it? Like, kind of like what you're saying, how can you apply this information or use it in some type of meaningful way in society and not just being able to regurgitate mm -hmm. information like a lot of education is today. So 
It'll definitely be interesting because it's it's just hard to compete when this thing is telling you why this acorn, this squirrel <laughs> thing is funny. <laughs> um, you know, just between Chat GP three and because I started using it a few months before Chat GPT four came out. So um, when I saw what Chat GPT four could do, and then they were talking about you know later on it's going to have video capabilities. It's just kind of like wow, that's amazing. So I'm developing a website. I'm not using chat GPT to like develop the website, but I am using it to like come up with these little synopsis to put into my um, little profiles for companies. So it's well, been helpful for me. I got to admit. That's where it saves you time is you're giving it yeah. specific questions and then it gives you the output that you specifically need. Yeah. Yeah. So it it's really good at those small tasks, making them good. Mm-hmm. Now, and as as far as, you know, bringing it back full circle, when I think about it, like, I think about the educational system today, and I think a bit, part of the problem is we're still asking kind of those factual questions. And students see that there's, you know, Google, there's chat GPT now. And what's the motivation for them to go to school and listen to the teacher and try to absorb this material that you know, it doesn't really matter too much in the grand scheme of things. Mm, and so yeah. that's a big question that we end up having to, to kind of answer. And if we were able to answer that, then, you know, the entire world would be transformed and everyone would, would thrive. Yeah. So I, I want to actually, because, you know, just by our conversations and, you know, you mentioned what prompted you to make the switch over from being an astrophysicist to like, I guess, dealing more with people. Um, what would be your ultimate like goal or I guess accomplishment or, or job? Like what does Amanda, um, Amanda, Amanda want to leave the world with um, to feel like this, your greatest sense of accomplishment? You know, I don't think I'll ever be done in feeling like I want that accomplishment because, you know, just like getting my, my doctor, I always want to finish more and do more. And so mm-hmm. my my husband, he's near the age of retirement and I'm, I'm a few years off, but I'm going to have a hard time doing it because, you know, my mission since I made the switch has been to, to save the world. And, you know, especially in open source, like, and now that we have AI, it's like we're starting to solve huge problems with computer science and AI. You know, we're getting mm-hmm. closer to, to solutions of cancer. Um, we can now do genetically modified engineering on food to make, you know, rice iron rich. And so people that don't have access to anything but rice can actually thrive. Um, and so I would say that I will never be done with the sense of accomplishment until, you know, the world over is well fed and happy. Mm-hmm. Nice. Let's talk about that a bit, little bit more since you mentioned open source. How do you see yourself doing that with open source? So most programming languages and big resources involve some form of open source. And, you know, even big companies like Microsoft, for example, they, they have GitHub, which is, you know, of course, mm-hmm. there's enterprise levels, but it's also accessible in an open source platform for people to use at the base level. And so I think that, you know, having access to really high resources like open source software means that the entire world can utilize them. And -hmm. when you have open source development, you actually have a higher caliber of development because your code's out there in the open. So you know it has to be secure so that people 
can't hack it because they see exactly the source code and how it might be hackable. Mm -hmm. I think you just did it, but for people listening who don't really know what open source is, could you like define that in a nice little package for them? Oh, so open source software is software that has its source available for you to kind of use and see. And there's, there's different types of open source, but if you can see the actual code itself, then it's some type of open source. And that just means the source is available for you to browse and, you know, you can edit it in some cases, you can take an open source and you can modify it and make it your own thing in some cases. And so if there's a, a project that you really like that's open source, then you can, you know, kind of take it, modify it and use it in your own thing. Yeah, we use it a lot at my job at Discover. So I've heard of open source before Discover, but uh, I really hadn't had any type of exposure to it. I've done a little stuff in GitHub, but not by by any means am I an expert or really can just go in there and do stuff. It's just like specific little tasks that I need to do for my job that um, I can go in there and do. I, that, that was actually what that call was about um, <laughs> prior yeah, to this meeting. It. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, interesting that whole concept of, you know, people having this code out there that is, you know, shareable and like you were saying, editable. And for me, a big company like, um, Discover using something that's free and it's just kind of like an open like that. It's just like, this is weird, but it's, it's like, I'm not into that part of tech like that. So, um, it was definitely some a learning experience for me to see how it. I think Red Hat uses a lot of um, open source, so I do a lot of stuff with them. They're one of the vendors that I work with, so it's been interesting to learn about open source and how you know, like you said, companies can get it and customize it and use it to their specific needs. So that's that's definitely interesting. Well, and I, I like to think about it as you don't have to reinvent the wor the wheel with open source. You mm -hmm. know, for if you make something that's a proprietary software, then somebody else might make that same exact thing, just a little different, of course. And that means you have to duplicate the efforts. But if it's open source, then, you know, just take the wheel and let it roll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the Linux Foundation a little bit more, just kind of like who they are and, and what they do? Yeah. So the, the Linux Foundation is... It started off with, of course, the, the Linux operating system, and they wanted to essentially have software accessible to everyone and an operating system ready for everyone. Because, you know, back then it was like Windows, which is, of course, proprietary. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. Linux started, and actually the creator of Linux also made Git, which you heard from GitHub, right? So that you mm -hmm. could take Linux and edit it in real time with other people. But since then, the Linux Foundation emerged as kind of a champion of open source. And so things like Kubernetes is an open source project under the Linux Foundation. And that's because so many people use it that if it was, you know, suddenly swept up as a proprietary device, then the world would crumble. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so yeah. the Linux Foundation is there to kind of be this, this third party kind of vendor neutral people that help the open source projects go forward. 